0: Amen. Good morning. My name is Josh. What a joy it is to be gathered in this room on this day with the people of God. And I know that sounds like a really churchy thing to say, but I, I say it with all sincerity. It is such a joy to gather in this place. And we know that these Lord's Day moments that we share together are profoundly necessary for us as Christians. And the things that we do in this room together, singing together, taking the Lord's Supper together, reading God's Word together, praying together, and sitting under the teaching of God's Word together. These are all things that are critical to our Christian lives. And so with that in view, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel. John chapter 12. You know, Paul mentioned a moment ago that we are a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-loving church. And it's an interesting time to be a church like that right now in this cultural moment. Because the Bible is sort of rapidly falling out of favor in our culture. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the Bible is taking a little bit of a beating in mainstream culture. Uh, Our culture really prizes autonomy, self-determination, the freedom to be your best authentic self, to be able to cast off sort of any sort of external authority or restraint and to live the life that you desire to live. And this book, it, it speaks across the centuries with ancient wisdom about who God is. It tells us of God's authority over his creation. It places limits on our lives. And it, it places limits on what we are able to do profitably with our lives and, and with our bodies. And for our cultural moment... That's sort of the ultimate heresy, isn't it? And so consequently, many people are seeing the Bible today as, as actually being a barrier to faith rather than a means of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe that's, maybe that's where you are today. But we believe as a, as a church that, that this book has been given to us in order not, to, in order not to, to rob us of joy, but in order to lead us into a greater experience of joy. Not to limit our lives, but to lead us into that life which is truly life. Not to inhibit our flourishing as people, but to show us what true flourishing is under God's rule and according to God's design. And so to the skeptic, even to the person who maybe feels a measure of hostility to the things that they see in this book, we want to say with Jesus and with his apostles, hey, come and see. Come and see the reality of who Jesus is. That's why we've been studying John's gospel in the past little over a year. John's gospel gives us the story and the significance of Jesus Christ, and it reveals the real Jesus to us so that we might know him and have life in him. And this morning we come in John's gospel, in chapter 12, to the narrative of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So I want to invite you, if you're able and willing, to stand with me For the reading of God's Word. We'll be in John chapter 12. I'll begin reading in verse 12 and read through verse 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel!' The reason why the crowd went to meet him was, they heard, was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Surely the grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. Now The word of God endures forever, and the one who has ears to hear, let him hear it. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we ask this morning that you would open up our eyes, unstop our ears, and soften our hearts so that we might see and hear and treasure beautiful, wondrous things in your word. We come under its authority in glad submission to you, be present among us, and bless us with your truth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You may not know who Marcus Person is, but if you are the parent of children of a certain age, uh, he's likely to have had at least some measure of influence in your life. Marcus Person is the inventor of Minecraft. Anybody? A couple of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Minecraft is a game that all four of my children love and I secretly despise. Uh, it's actually not that bad. But anyway, in 2009, Marcus Persson invented this game. It's, a, it's like a world-building game. It's, it's very complex and kids seem to be very into it. Uh, he invented it in 2009 and watched this game just blow up and become an international phenomenon. It became popular all over the world. So popular it became that in 2014, Marcus Person was able to sell his company for the tidy sum of $2.5 billion. Not bad. That's not bad. And then uh, he, he accomplished every tech entrepreneur's dream. And after the sale, he went on to live the full dream. He bought a $70 million house. He went on vacations, lavish vacations. He partied with celebrities. He traveled the world. But about one year into his post-windfall existence, Marcus Persson posted something on Twitter. He said, the problem with getting everything is that you run out of reasons to keep trying. Hanging out with a bunch of friends, partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I have never felt more isolated. Mm. There's a lot of lessons we could draw out of that story. But I want us just to, to think for a second about one that's certain. You know, life has a way of confounding our expectations, doesn't it? Life has a way of not delivering us to the outcomes that we're expecting. Because we are not God. We don't see the end from the beginning. We don't, understand, we don't have the ability in our, in our finite selves to be able to rightly interpret everything that happens around us. Life is a way of confounding our expectations. And I, you may not be a multi-billionaire tech entrepreneur, but I would wager that you've experienced this at least to some degree in your own life, whether it's financially, professionally, relationally, spiritually. Well, in this story of the triumphal entry, Jesus' behavior is going to confound everyone's expectations confounds the expectations of, of us as the readers of this text, and it confounds the expectations of the crowd who's gathering to him. And as the long-expected Messiah steps into his saving work in the most unexpected way, my hope this morning is that we'll be able to see what a great Savior he truly is. I want us to see two ways that Jesus confounds expectations. First, by going public as king second, by demonstrating that he is like no other king. I want to look at these two ways that Jesus confounds our expectations, then we'll make some applications as we close. Point number one, Jesus goes public as king. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that a big event has just taken place in the verses previous to these. Jesus has raised his friend, Lazarus, from the dead in Bethany. And in doing this, Jesus has definitively, authoritatively demonstrated his power. He's demonstrated that he has power not only over loaves and fishes, not only over water and wine, not only over wind and waves, but he has power over even death itself. And the raising of Lazarus is the ultimate sign of Jesus' true identity. In raising Lazarus, Jesus has, has opened up his, his coat to show you the S on his chest. He said, here it is. I'm not just a man. I'm not just a rabbi with a humble pedigree and a love for broken people. No, I am who I say I am. I am God in the flesh. And in performing this sign, in in completing this act, Jesus does so in a public manner. There are witnesses to this miracle that he's performing. It's not just Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus. There are Mourners and well wishers and onlookers who are beholding this miracle as Lazarus, the dead guy, dead for four days, steps out of the tomb alive. And in the aftermath of this event, all of these witnesses who were there and saw it, they do what witnesses do they start bearing witness. They start to testify and telling people about what Jesus has done. And this brings about two results. First, crowds are hearing and coming. Jesus remains at Bethany with his friends for a few days, and as he does, a large crowd is coming to him because of the testimony of the witnesses. We saw that last week in verse 9, and it's in our text this morning. In verse 17, large crowds are coming to him because of the testimony of the witnesses. It's a little bit like if you give a bite of your steak to one of my kids, you know what's going to happen? In just a few minutes, all the other kids are going to descend on you like a swarm of locusts even though you already fed them delicious daddy pasta for dinner, right? Do you guys know about daddy pasta? You just throw like the noodles, the butter, the parmesan cheese, the salt, just in a pot, just mix it up, just give it to the kids. Ladies, you would just be horrified at how we treat these children and feed them when you're not around. Anyway, they could be full, but they find out that dad's got steak. They're there. They're coming. The point is the crowds are hearing and they're coming. That's the first consequence of this miracle. The second is this. The religious leaders are hearing, and they are plotting. The fact that Lazarus is now walking around, talking to people about the fact that he was dead, and now, like, not so much, this presents a huge, massive political problem for the Pharisees. They have already decided that Jesus needs to die, and now they say, that's not enough. Lazarus has got to go, too. This is the backdrop of this event. There's one other important element that I need to explain. And that's what's happening on the calendar. It says it's time for the feast. We're in the season of the Passover. Very important celebration and uh, event that Israel would remember. Ever since the days of King Josiah, Israel had a solemn duty not to celebrate the Passover feast in their homes, but instead to journey to Jerusalem to celebrate it there. And so on, uh, when Passover time came, Jews from all over the Mediterranean region, all the way down into North Africa, would leave their homes and they would journey up to Jerusalem to observe this feast. And uh, the crowd that would come, as you can imagine, would be, would be massive. There was a, a first century Jewish uh, historian named Josephus who recorded that at the Passover celebration that took place 30 years after this one, in uh, 66 or 67 A.D., The crowd that came and gathered in Jerusalem was upwards of 2.7 million people. So think of a crowd. It's a huge crowd. Think of the crowd at an FSU home game for like a big home game like Miami or Clemson and multiply that by 34 times. It's a massive crowd descending on Jerusalem. And as Jesus makes the short two-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem to go to the celebration himself, portion of this massive crowd is moving toward him and as Jesus enters Jerusalem they begin to respond to him John tells us they began to wave palm branches let me explain a little bit about the symbolism here palm branches were used in the liturgy of the feast of tabernacles so there is some sort of religious significance to this here but there's also a distinctly political connotation to this act as well you know, at this point in Israel's history, they were an occupied nation. The Romans were occupying them. They were oppressing them. And, and the, the Jewish state was, was going to great pains to stake out their distinct federal and national identity in the midst of their occupation. And one of the symbols that they employed as a, as a, as a statement about their identity as distinct from Rome was the imagery of the palm tree. In fact, the palm tree actually appears on the coins that they struck during the period of the Roman occupation. So these palm branches, they have both spiritual and political significance. And as they're waving the branches, they're, they're crying out. They're saying, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means literally give salvation now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they're paraphrasing the words of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the last psalm of the halal, a collection of psalms from Psalm 113 to 118 that would always be sung by the temple choir in the mornings at the feast celebrations. They would sing the halal every morning. And as they come to the end of the halal, to the end of Psalm 118 where this word hosanna appears, all the men who were gathered for worship would pick up something called a lulach, which is a palm branch, And they would wave it as the Hosanna was sung over them. And now, in observance of this Palm Sunday, we traditionally will give your children palm branches with which to strike you in the back of the head from the back of the van as you're driving home and then to lose underneath furniture in your house only to be recovered as you're moving furniture like Katie and I did a couple of weeks ago when we were moving some furniture around in our house. We found a palm branch there. So let me, let me put all this together in terms of the, the, the symbolism and the significance here. The people are in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They're remembering and meditating on and rejoicing in their liberation from slavery in Egypt hundreds of years ago. This most significant event in Israel's history. All throughout the Old Testament, God speaks through the prophets and through the psalmists and he says, remember the Exodus. Don't forget you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget about the deliverance God. So they're coming to remember and celebrate God's deliverance. And at the same time, they're looking forward expectantly for a hoped-for deliverance. They're hoping that God will deliver them from their present Roman occupation. And what's on their minds, what they're expecting is a king. They're expecting that a king will come, a king in the line of David. God promised throughout Israel's history through the prophets that there was a king who was coming to Israel. He would be in David's line. He would be the true and better David. He would not fail morally like David did. He would not fail religiously like Solomon did, but he would would raise Israel up and restore her to her former glory. And the way that they're thinking about this, in the midst of their occupation, in the midst of the Roman oppression is they're looking for someone who will come in nationalist power to take up arms against their enemies and to once and for all remove the Roman boot from their necks. And they're asking, is this him? This has got to be him. He's got power over death. And if you know your Bible, you know that Jesus is the king who comes in the line of David. But he is not going to come in the way that they expect. We'll get to see that here in just a moment. But first, I want, I want us to see something else. In coming into Jerusalem, in the way that he does, de- Jesus doesn't justify the crowd's expectations. He defies our expect- expectations as well readers. How so? He does so by, by not rebuking the crowds. If you've, been, if you've been following along as you've been reading in John, you see that every time Jesus performs a miracle, anytime people are ready to say, check out who Jesus is, look who's here, he's, he's constantly saying, don't tell anybody. In John chapter 6, verse 15, right after Jesus has, has fed tens of thousands of people with a little boy's Lunchable Verse 15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus is constantly telling people that he's healed, people who who have observed his healings, telling his disciples, don't tell anybody, keep what I've done and who I am quiet. And he often gives the reason or the gospel writers will insert parenthetically a comment on why that is because his time had not yet come the time for the son of man to be lifted up had not yet come but you see something's different now jesus doesn't hush the crowds he doesn't withdraw and disappear to a quiet place he doesn't he doesn't tamp down their excitement at who he is He accepts their acclamation. This is a total pivot for Jesus. This is totally unexpected. And why does he do it? We'll see in verse 23 when we get to the next section. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is ready to be hailed as king because he is ready to go to the cross. And in receiving the praises of the crowds, in going public as king, Jesus is setting in motion the events that will lead him to his death. Jesus goes public as king. Point number two. The second way in which Jesus confounds our expectations. Jesus is like no other king. The fact that Jesus goes public as king here, that's not the most unexpected thing about this narrative. The most unexpected thing about this narrative is the manner in which Jesus goes public as king. Jesus comes to Jerusalem in humility. Remember, he's just revealed his identity as the conqueror of death. He's the king of of the universe. He's receiving the praise that's due to him and to him alone because of who he is. And so he, he comes and he saddles up his donkey? This makes, this makes no sense at all. This confounds every expectation we have of what a king does. This is not a fitting mount for a king to choose for himself. You know, if the president of the United States wants to go across town in Washington, D.C. He rolls in a heavy Cadillac that's outfitted with bulletproof glass. It's got its own, like, independent air supply in case of a biological attack. I mean, that's not good news for us, but he'll still be okay. Unless you have that on your car, in which case, text me so I'll know to jump in your car in the event of that emergency. And when he goes, he's flanked by this massive motorcade of people whose sole job is to make sure that he stays safe. By the way, if you're looking for some time to waste on the internet, not that that's a hard thing to find at this point, but read up on all that goes into the presidential motorcade and protective details. Fascinating. What about the Pope? The Pope has historically traveled around in the Pope Mobile. Have you seen the Pope Mobile? It's this sort of like tricked-out Mercedes Benz with a big bubble that he can kind of sit in and be driven, where he can sort of wave and bestow his blessings on the crowd and do Pope things. You know, it's interesting, the, uh, the current Pope, Pope Francis, he doesn't use the Mobile. If he needs to go somewhere, he either takes public transit or drives himself in a Ford Focus. Pretty interesting. That's not a commendation of anybody that I was just talking about. I just think that's an interesting fact. The point is, you'd expect the conquering king to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse to raise up his army to take care of business on Rome. That's exactly what these people are expecting. The Jews wanted a zealot warrior king, a revolutionary who would come and flex on the Romans. That's what they wanted. That's what they were expecting. They are expecting Che Guevara in worn-out sandals, William Wallace with a Middle Eastern accent. And instead, they get the... Rabbi Carpenter on a donkey. A donkey is a ridiculous animal. It's an utterly incomprehensible mount for the king to take for himself. But when you think about it, human frailty is an incomprehensible thing for the king of the universe to take for himself too. But that's who Jesus is. Jesus is... Constantly subverting our expectations of what real power and real authority look like. Jesus' authority is displayed clothed in humility, with no riches or royal robes adorning him, no army following behind him, and no weapon in his hand to use against his enemies except his own death. This is not the king that they were expecting. John tells us that Jesus rides on this donkey in self-conscious fulfillment of some of the prophecies in the Old Testament made about him. John gives a paraphrase of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey when jesus goes public as king he doesn't come riding the war horse to battlefield to the battlefield he comes riding a donkey to his death jesus is not the king you expect he is something far greater. Something far greater. I want you to see this as well. Jesus comes to Jerusalem in humility, but, but, but see this as well. Jesus also comes to Jerusalem in tears. He comes in tears. Flip over, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. Luke's account fills out a little more fully the picture of Jesus entering Jerusalem Luke 19, verse 41. Luke tells us that when he drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation try to imagine this in your mind's eye as he comes over as he crests the mount of olives and he looks down upon the city of Jerusalem the land of promise that God gave to his people hundreds of years before and his his soul is deeply moved with sorrow as he sees the unbelief of his people, their unwillingness to receive him for who he is, and the judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem as a result of their unbelief. He sees all of this, and he breaks down. Just like he did at the tomb of Lazarus, when Jesus is confronted with the terrible, soul-destroying effects of sin, he is moved to tears. And instead, instead of cursing and abandoning his rebellious people for all of the ways that we have sinned against him and broken the perfection of his design for the world, he weeps. This is King Jesus. He enters Jerusalem not as a warrior going to victory, but as a lamb going to the slaughter. He comes to win by losing and to bring life through his own death. Instead of leaving his wandering sheep to be devoured by wolves, he offers himself to the wolves in their place. Jesus is both the King of glory and the suffering servant. The conqueror of death who conquers through his own death he is utter majesty and utter meekness held perfectly together in the man who was God Jesus is not the king we expected but he is far better he is far better And I wonder if you know this, Jesus. I wonder if you've encountered the friend of sinners who comes into the mess of human sin in humility and in tears to rescue his people through his death. I wonder if you know him. So, how are we to respond to Jesus, the humble king? How are we to respond to him? I'm going to give you three applications. Three very simple ways we can respond to this portrait of Jesus. Number one, learn to read your story in light of Jesus' story. Learn to read your story in light of Jesus' story. Thank you, John, for including verse 16. I'm so grateful for this. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. I'm so glad that's in my Bible because I so often don't understand what God is doing in the moment. I, listen, I'm really sorry if that, if that shatters some sort of view that you have of pastors that we're supposed to sort of be able to kind of figure these things out in the moment. And I, often I just can't. Can you relate to that? Not too long ago, I was, I was dealing with some disappointment, a difficult providence in my life that was, that was troubling me. And, and to be honest, I was just kind of having a hard time getting past it. I was having a hard time applying the, the comforts and the consolations of the gospel to that situation. And to be honest, what it really was is not much more simple than this. I was failing to believe what I believe. Can you relate to that? You ever been there? As I was, and if we can even be even more honest than that, it's just between us. I was probably wallowing a little bit. I was wallowing a teeny bit. But my wife loves me. And in the midst of that, she looked at me and, and said with, with gentleness and firmness, Honey, does, does Jesus get to say no or not now to you? Is it okay for him to do that? Can you trust him with that and believe that he's good and that he's at work in the midst of that? And she was completely right. That was exactly what I needed to hear. I needed to be reminded of what I know is true. I know what this book tells me, which is that Jesus is the God of history who is orchestrating everything that's happening right now according to the eternal counsel of his will. And he's working every single bit of it down to the last detail for his glory and for my everlasting joy. I believe that. Do you believe that? And knowing that's true, it can make all the difference in the midst of your disappointment, your pain, your marital struggle, your financial hardship. It makes all the difference to know that Jesus is preparing us through our suffering, through our disappointment, for eternity with him. To know that Jesus' story ends with a glorious resurrection and yours does too. So application number one, learn to interpret your story in light of Jesus' story. Number two, see Jesus as your treasure, not a means to some other end. The crowds, they wanted Jesus, but they wanted him as a means to some other end. They wanted Jesus because of the political liberation they were seeking When Jesus wanted to give them something better than political liberation. He wanted to give them life in him. The ultimate reward of the gospel, the ultimate blessing of life with Christ is Christ. It's not physical healing in this life. It's not success. It's not a happier marriage or better behaved kids. It's Christ. You come to Jesus and you get him. Jesus is not a means of getting some other thing that you want ultimately. In fact, to follow Jesus may, may mean that you have to suffer the loss of some of those things that you want so much. Jesus may call you to suffer in this life, but He will give you glory with Him in the next life. And when you really understand who Jesus is and what He offers you look at him and you look at all these other things over here, that becomes a very easy value proposition for you. Let me explain with a story. A few years ago, I heard the testimony of a man named Afshin Ziafat. Afshin's father uh, was a very prominent leader in the Muslim community of Houston, Texas. And Afshin was his sort of bright star of a son. But Afshin had something happen to him when he was in high school. Somebody gave him a Bible and told him about Jesus. And Afshin became a Christian. And as a teenager, Afshin knew what he had to do. He had to go home and tell his father what Jesus had done for him. And he went home and he said, I, I no longer want to follow the teachings of Islam. I belong to Jesus Christ. I've given my heart to him and I am a Christian now and I hope that you'll accept that. And Afshin's father looked at him and said, what you have just told me is the great stain on my life, you are no longer my son, you are no longer welcome in my home and so Afshin having counted the cost of following Jesus left his home that day to follow Jesus and hearing Afshin tell that story he said Afshin's a pastor now and he gets invited all all over the country and all over the world to speak and he says I've told that story many many times all over the world and every time I tell it, every single time someone comes up to me and they say Oh, Afshin, man, I don't, I don't know. I, I appreciate you telling me that story. I just don't know if I could have done what you did. I don't know if I could have done it. And Afshin said, and I always look at that person and I say, I'm so grateful that you wanted to encourage me. Thank you so much for saying that. But can I just tell you, brother, if that's true, I'm afraid you don't know what you have in Jesus Christ. Afshin had to reckon with, as a teenage boy, the reality that Jesus is that treasure that you find buried in a field. And when you realize how valuable it is, you're willing to suffer the loss of everything else so that you can obtain it. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See Jesus as your treasure, not as a means to some other end. And finally, third, come and learn who Jesus really is. And that's an application, by the way, for every person in this room. Whether you don't know what to make of all this Christianity stuff, and you don't know what the deal is with everything I've been talking about for the last 30 minutes, or you've been walking with Jesus for decades. Come and learn who Jesus really is. And here's the best part about that. The king on a donkey He's really easy to get to. He's really easy to get to. You probably can't get an audience with the President of the United States or the Queen of England. My guess is you're probably not on the guest list for the royal wedding that's coming up soon. But you can get to Jesus because he's the God who comes low for you. He's the king who takes the low place so his people can have access to him. And he knows you by name he knows your fears and your hurts and your struggles and the crushing burden of your sin he knows it and he's ready to receive those burdens and to give you the grace that you need if you're hurting or disappointed he is not far from you today and all you have to do is come to him and all it will cost you is your self righteousness and your self sufficiency Because Jesus is the Savior for all of those who know they have no hope of saving themselves. This cry of Hosanna, give salvation now. That's the cry of every human heart. Every one of us has something, some object or some person, something occupies that highest place in our affections. There's something that we love more than anything else in the world. We're looking for someone or something to save us and to make us whole. We're looking at that thing. It might be financial security. It might be your reputation. It might be the freedom to be the person that you feel like you ought to be. I don't know what it is for you, but everyone looks at that thing and says, give salvation now. Give my life meaning. Make me whole. Give me success. And so right now for our, for our culture, like I said at the beginning of our time, for so many people, that's, that's freedom. Just get the freedom to embrace who you really are. The ability to cast off all external authorities, all restraint, and you'll be able to live the life that you want to live. You can be your best authentic self. Then you'll be safe and you'll be whole. That's what our culture says right now. And Jesus says something a little bit different. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. When you come to the, to the humble king, it may be costly for you. It may be costly. But he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a burden that's light and a yoke that's easy. And in me, you will find rest for your soul. And Jesus says, I am the only master who will not oppress and crush and destroy you like every other master you've ever given yourself to. I'm the only one. Aren't you tired of striving in your own strength? Aren't you tired of being crushed by the things and the people that you love the most? Come to Jesus today, the humble king, is the rest that your soul longs for and was created for. And you can find it in him today. Let's pray.